Welcome to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Tanif, and today I'm covering Marianne, episode 7 and episode 8. These are the penultimate and the final episodes of the entire show. So, um, yeah, let's get the verdict out of the way first. Marianne is not good. It's not a good show. It does a lot of good stuff in it, definitely. But it does more stuff that's cringy and brainless and ridiculous, and so the final product isn't something that I can honestly say I enjoyed. I think I will be able to look back more fondly upon the show once there's more distance between myself and the immediate experience of having watched it. I think that it'll be something I'll think of a bit more fondly in retrospect, given the way memory tends to smooth over the rougher edges of a story. In a month's time, I will likely have stronger memories of what I did enjoy here than what I didn't, and I'm looking forward to that. I'll certainly never be re-watching this show again, and so I hope that it will end up existing in my memory as something rather mediocre that I kind of mildly enjoyed and wish had been better. In the immediate aftermath of having watched these two final episodes, though, oh boy, do I have some thoughts. Our penultimate episode, titled Too Young to Handle It, opens with a quote from Lovecraft's The Hound. I have been picking my way through his entire works over the past year, and it's going very slowly indeed, given that my only available reading time these days is during my dog's morning walk when he's allowed to, like, hang out at the park for 20 minutes or so. And between you and me, I've been kind of stuck in the middle of the dream quest of Unknown Kadath for like a month now, and while I'm honestly kind of enjoying it, it is definitely a lot of words for like, not a lot of plot. But that's Lovecraft for you, and I'm getting off track. My point is that The Hound is a story I've read very recently, and while it's not one of my favorites, it's one that I enjoyed well enough. Most people, I think, are familiar with the fictional Necronomicon, and The Hound is the story from which it originates. The story itself is about two grave robbers who keep a macabre little private museum of sickening curiosities until they rob the very particular grave of a man who five centuries before was a grave robber in the same vein as themselves. They take from this predecessor's corpse a jade amulet with a dog-like face, and are from then on haunted by the distant bane of hounds and, of course, ill fortune. When one of the grave robbers dies, the other realizes that he must return the amulet if he's to have any hope of surviving. And when he reopens the grave he robbed, he finds the ancient skeleton is now fanged, leering and coated in fresh blood and gore, and then it opens its jaws and howls and the narrator is driven to so-called madness. I really enjoy the final paragraph of this story, and I wish I could justify reading it to you here, but the show instead chooses to quote the first line of the story instead, which I will read now. In my tortured ears there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint distant bane as of some gigantic hound. Before I move on, I will point out that this story is in the public domain and that it's quite short, so I highly recommend sparing a few minutes toward reading it. I will leave the link in the show notes. Now, the connection between the Hound and Marianne is, of course, obvious. Just as the long-dead ghoul in Lovecraft's story lingered for five centuries in a state of undeath and, when freed, wreaked havoc upon the living, so too does Marianne. Though we'll see much more of that in the next episode than in this one. For now, though, we are briefly in the past. It is 1617, 75 years before America's own famous witch trials, and Marianne's body is being put into its grave. She's been hanged to death, wrapped in a burial shroud, and tied up, but she's still not entirely down for the count. There's a bit of parchment down there in the grave with her, and the logic of trying to burn this while inside the grave doesn't entirely make sense to me, but okay. And it's gotta be burnt in order for her to properly rest. But the priest that's down here is in no insignificant danger. His hands are shaking before he's even started trying to burn the damn thing, and it just won't seem to ignite no matter how long he tries to hold it to the fire. And then the corpse starts talking to him, and then moving toward him. And then there it is, the silliest fucking thing the show has done so far. I genuinely don't even know what this wall-eyed burnt bitch is supposed to be. Is it Belleth? Is it Marianne? Maybe it's something the fuck else entirely. But more importantly, I truly do not know or want to know why the creators chose to give it a high gal face. 
So let's not dwell on that. The priest freaks out, justifiably, I would be very scared myself, and runs out of the grave. But he takes his cowardice much too far. He tells the others that he burnt the parchment to ashes, which he most certainly did not, and one imagines we could have avoided this whole ordeal if he had just managed to keep it together for the 30 more seconds it would have taken to finish burning that damn page. But back to the present. Samuel's death is a net loss for the show as far as I'm concerned, but at least they managed to do some interesting things with the corpse, which is an odd sentence now that I say it out loud. Marianne winds up puppeting his dead ass around more than once in this episode. First, his body floats up into the air as Marianne abandons it, just as Camille's body did in the previous episode. The shipwreck kids scatter, all of them running in different directions. They run into the dog at this point, and its glowing eyes immediately give away the degree of threat here. The dog is now possessed by Marianne, which is in fact what they wanted, but they certainly didn't want it like this. It chases them, trapping Emma in the car, but that apparently is where Samuel's other gun is. Emma gets it out and tries to sneak back into the school, but the dog is right behind her and she pulls the trigger. When next we see her, she will claim that she did not actually kill the dog and will eventually get evidence of this claim, or so it seems. We will never know, though, how this is possible. This does not appear to be the moment when Emma became possessed by Marianne, so why did the dog decide to let her go? More importantly, how and why did Emma manage to fire the gun three times without hitting the animal once? As this is going on, Aurora and Sebastian are back in the classroom with Samuel's corpse and Lucy's awful little monkey toy. Marianne, masquerading as Lucy, taunts Sebastian and Aurora with their worst nightmares. Sebastian, with the idea of his child being actively cannibalized by Marianne while he sits there, powerless to do anything but listen, and Aurora with the unfortunate half-truth of the part that Emma played in Lucy's accidental suffocation 15 years ago. Then Emma storms in. She points the gun at Sebastian and Aurora, demanding to know if either of them is Marianne. It is a direct question, and so there should be no opportunity to lie here. Sebastian says he's not Marianne, Aurora says she's not Marianne, and so too does Emma say that she is not Marianne. If any of them were indeed possessed at this point, this would be an impossibility. And so it's safe to say that while Emma will indeed become possessed in the very near future, she is not yet at this point under Marianne's control. So Emma denies killing the dog, but doesn't bother to explain what did happen to it, and then we're off to Arnaud. His encounter is even sadder than Aurora's false reunion with her lost sibling, because Arnaud does not understand when he sees Tonio that Tonio is lost. Tonio insists that he is merely imprisoned, not dead, and that Emma can, in fact, bring him back, but she has to write. If she writes that Tonio is restored, then he will be. Otherwise, Marianne will take Aurora next, and won't Arnaud feel awful then, losing the only woman who truly loves him so soon after losing his baby brother? So Arnaud rejoins the group, and Emma puts him to the same test as she did the others. Holding him at gunpoint, she asks if he is Marianne, and of course he answers no, but he is definitely there to argue her case. They don't have any other plans, after all, and so what other choice do they have but for Emma to start writing again? After that, Marianne puppets Samuel's corpse for a lovely little horror scene, using him to write threads on the chalkboard. One of you for me, the translation goes, and then Marianne lunges from the shadows towards Aurora. The others don't see the specter, but there's no mistaking the way that Aurora gets thrown across the room. Emma puts the anti-demon necklace around Aurora's neck and holds her while Arnaud and Sebastian try to convince her to write. If she does write, Sebastian says, then Marianne will return his baby safe and sound, and Arnaud too should get his brother back. But it's far too late for Lucy, and Aurora can't help letting Marianne's taunting get to her. She presses Emma, demanding to know if it's true that Emma was on the island when Lucy died. And despite literally making shit up for a living, Emma doesn't even think to lie here. She doesn't try to defend herself, and she doesn't even explain the circumstances of what happened. She just tearfully confesses and begs for understanding, and she is resoundingly denied by all of her friends. Sebastian, in particular, calls her unforgivable, and this guy is the single most hot and cold character I think I've ever seen. He rockets between loving and hating Emma so quickly it might give you whiplash. 
Worse, though, is that he's completely unreasonable. Emma is in no way, shape, or form responsible for Lucy's death, and yet all of her friends condemn her for it. Seriously, they're acting here like Emma shoved Lucy into Marianne and yelled, take her instead or something. And if you've seen my reaction video for this episode, which is available to $5 patrons, you will know that I spent a good long while talking about my thoughts on this scene during that video, and to be perfectly honest, I don't really want to get into all of that again. Not solely because it's rather triggering and very much verging into the realm of oversharing. Let me just say, I suppose, that this scene is extremely childish, and not merely in the sense of Emma being a Peter Pan figure. This scene casts the author in a childish light. This scene is something that I would expect from the mind of an extremely ill teenager, not a functional adult capable of landing a Netflix show. If a child were to write this, it would be a cry for help. If an adult writes this, though, that's just verging on narcissism definitely unresolved trauma. Seek help. And having once been a child who absolutely was writing scenes like this and crying desperately out for help, the mere existence of this scene in the story risks triggering my own PTSD and suicidal ideation, so let's move on, shall we? At her lowest moment, after turning on her as thoroughly and vocally as they possibly could, Sebastian, Aurora, and Arnaud once more tell Emma that she must write. Emma doesn't respond, and when she goes to leave, Arnaud pulls a gun on her. I don't really know what the plan is here. If he shoots her, she sure as shit isn't going to be writing, now is she? And even as she stares down the barrel of a gun, she tells him that she's not going to write, and it wouldn't bring Tonio back anyway. Ultimately, Arnaud stands down and decides that this means he's got to volunteer himself to Marianne. She's going to take them all one by one, after all, and Aurora is next, and he's not going to let that happen so he volunteers himself and seems completely shocked when she takes him up on the offer. Now, I suppose we should take a moment to point out how awful Emma's response is. The director really made this poor actress stomp her fucking foot as she screams no over and over again, and yeah, let's just pretend we didn't have to see that shit. After snatching Arnaud up, Marianne dumps him at the top of the lighthouse. She creeps up on him in the dark as the light swings round and round, and then suddenly she's replaced by Tonio, whose face grows darker and more shadowy and more sinister with every passing word, and it's a wonderfully creepy effect until they suddenly swap him out for another silly bug-eyed demon fucker. But bye-bye Arnaud. The next day, after Emma and the other two survivors make it back from the lighthouse island, Emma sits down to write. And since the last we saw of her was this impassioned speech about how she'll never do what Marianne wants, I cannot for a moment pretend that this makes much sense at all. I will accept it because what choice do I have, but I fucking hate it, thank you. She gets started on the new adventures of Lizzie Lark, and Sebastian heads home to find that Marianne has left his baby alive at his house supposedly. It's possible that there's some trick to this, but if there is, the audience never gets let in on the secret. As far as I know, Marianne indeed held up her end of the bargain. Marianne indeed gave Sebastian his baby back in exchange for Emma's writing. Now, the exact timeline of events is a bit unclear. In the next episode, we will get confirmation that at some point, Emma becomes unknowingly possessed by Marianne. My preferred interpretation, I think, is that she becomes possessed as soon as she begins to write, but it's possible that she instead becomes possessed during or after this next scene. And oh boy, is it a doozy. Emma is lounging on her bed when she hears a tapping on her window. It's Sebastian, and he's here for a long conversation about Emma and forgiveness. But it turns into a bit more than that. I myself was suspicious throughout all of this scene, as Emma should have been. Sebastian's actions here make zero sense. He's just got his baby back, and so he abandons his family to come have a heart-to-heart -heart and an adulterous affair with Emma? Sebastian has made it repeatedly clear that he has no sexual or romantic interest in her. She is the one pushing him to make their relationship more than friends, and he has rejected her in favor of his wife every step of the way. 
that he's here to fuck her now. It didn't make any sense, and I'm as relieved as I am horrified that this is not, in fact, Sebastian at all. On the one hand, that this isn't Sebastian means that the show is not throwing his characterization into the bin so that Emma can get her love interest as a trophy. On the other hand, though, if this isn't Sebastian, then of course it can only be one of two people. It is either Marianne, or it's Belleth. And if it's Belleth, well, how do I put this delicately? One of the devil's monikers, as evidenced by that Nathaniel Hawthorne quote a few episodes back, is the black man. And, um, well, there's a certain lack of diversity to this show that makes this particularly... indelicate? Sebastian, a black man, has his visage stolen by a demon in order to rape by deception a white woman. And I'm honestly left wondering, did they cast Sebastian as the only black person in the show for the sole reason of the creators wanting to make a fucking pun? It really does kind of seem like it. But the audacity of that is just so far off the charts that it's hit the stratosphere and I simply cannot. So... With the transition from Emmeline in bed beside fake Sebastian to Emmeline in bed alone being a shot of Marianne snarling mine and snatching toward the camera, I think the implication is supposed to be that it was sex with fake Sebastian that allowed Marianne to possess Emma, which I hate and has its own really unfortunate implications. Like, am I supposed to understand that by getting tricked into consenting to sex, Emma was tricked into consenting to possession as well? Otherwise, I'm left wanting to make a joke about Bella fucking Marianne into Emma, which is a problem given that the bastard apparently did in a certain sense, fuck someone into her. Well, a hypothetical someone at least. If Emma's smart, she's going to get an abortion. If she's got a single brain cell inside her skull, she's not actually going to let that little cluster of cells in her womb grow into a fucking person. Though, since there's not going to be a season two, I suppose we'll never know. Except, put a pin in that thought, because I do want to circle back to the idea of season two once I wrap this up. For now, though, let's wrap up this episode. The priest is at Emma's door, and he's performing an exorcism whether she wants it or not. With Emma knocked flat on her ass and bleeding from her nose, we cut to credits. On to the next episode. Our final quote of the series is a line from Henry James' The Turn of the Screw. They are in my ears still, his supreme surrender of the name and his tribute to my devotion, is a line that appears in a single paragraph before the death of Miles, and the name in question is Peter Quint. Now, I'm not going to get into the turn of the screw here, not solely because I'm not fully familiar with the ins and outs of that story, but the gist is that the governess thinks the ghosts of Miss Jessel and Peter Quint are hanging around Miles and Flora, and one or both of them might have been molesting Miles. But the governess might just be imagining things, and hey, Miles' death in this scene might even be the governess accidentally killing him herself. This is not a story of concrete answers, and so I cannot offer you any insight on what truly happens in the plot, other than to say that my personal interpretation is that Peter Quint did molest Miles, and that Miles was definitely expelled from his school for making sexual and or romantic remarks to the other little boys. As to whether or not the governess killed him, I don't have an opinion either way. Maybe once I read it again, I'll have a firmer grasp on what I think. In any case, this quote is the one that I feel the most certain about in the entire show. It does not suit Marianne as well as the others, as far as I see it. The Peter Pan quote was obviously applicable to Emma, the Scarlet Letter and the Great God Pan quotes were roundabout foreshadowing of her conceiving a child, and all of the other quotes were more or less well suited to the story too. But this one feels less so. When it appears in the story, it is in the context of the governess seeing Peter Quint, Miles shouting his name and calling him a devil, and Miles dying a few moments later. But how does that map to this story? There is no Miles equivalent who dies here, and no governess equivalent who realizes that she's holding his corpse. The words supreme and surrender and devotion, of course, all have associations with religion and worship. And this is a distressingly Christian story, so perhaps this quote is meant to be divorced from its context and reappropriated into something more religious than it actually is. 
is? Whatever the point of this quote is, I suppose I'll just have to say that it eludes me, which does disappoint. I've quite enjoyed these quotes at the beginning of each episode, and that this last one leaves me unsatisfied is a hint of a sour note. So, the final episode proper opens with a bloodied Emma crawling to get away from the priest. But we're being a bit tricked here. His assault is not quite as violent as it looks. Emma is not actually bleeding. That is merely her perception of things. What's actually happening is that he's attacking her with holy water, which Marianne is making her interpret as being beaten bloody, because, I assume, Marianne does not want her to realize that she's been possessed. Not yet. Or else, this is literally just to trick the audience. I'm going to be generous and stick to the other interpretation, but... Well, I'm not entirely convinced that the show deserves such generosity. Anyway, when Emma makes it to the bedroom, the priest sees to his horror that she obeyed Marianne and wrote last night, which has the unfortunate implication of calling the priest's motives even further into question. Like I said, I personally don't think Emma became possessed until she started writing, or maybe even after. So if the priest is shocked and horrified to discover that she's been writing, when does he think she became possessed? Seriously, why is he here now? Why has he decided to perform this exorcism in this moment? Other than, of course, to provide the author with a contrived opportunity to reveal that Emma has finally been possessed without our realizing. It just bugs me, I guess is what I'm saying. Especially when the priest more or less throws up his hands and says the whole thing's useless. Because Emma wrote, he says, he cannot help her. And like, what the fuck kind of help did you think you were providing? Again, I think the implication is that the writing of the book is what allowed her to become possessed in the first place. So why is writing the book the thing that prevents the priest from performing a successful exorcism? I ask again, why is this priest here? Maybe this is something that only makes sense to Catholics or something like that, because it is fucking incomprehensible to me. Anyway, Emma pulls a gun on the priest and threatens to kill him for attacking her, and he claimed that he hasn't laid a single finger on her, revealing to the audience that Emma is not actually covered in blood. She's covered in holy water, which is burning her because she's finally been possessed by Marianne. And the priest, of course, gets in some excellent victim blaming. So, you know what? I'm glad he ends up fucking shot. But not before we get the line, are you Marianne? And Emma, to her horror, answers yes. After the credits, we find Aurora at the shipwreck. She thinks back to what Emma said to her as they left the island. That anti-demon necklace? Emma told her to make sure that she keeps wearing it. And that might have been a simple act of benevolence, or maybe it's a hint. Maybe Emma was already possessed by that point. Perhaps from the very moment when she took the necklace off to put it on Aurora instead. And she wanted Aurora to keep wearing it so that Emma didn't get out at his Marianne. And while I often enjoy skillful ambiguity, this is the kind of thing that I would like a concrete answer on. But back to Emma. She's devastated at having apparently lost the battle to Marianne, and Marianne makes her pull the trigger on the priest. She gets him, I think, in the leg, and he takes it very well, really cementing for me that he's supposed to be a heroic character, despite being a truly awful person throughout the entire show. He tells Emma that Marianne intends to live in Emma's body, and more specifically to, quote, procreate with your womb. Now, the transition from present day into flashback is fairly fun here. Emma gets lured into memory and fixates upon the bullet hole that Marianne shot into the wall, a lovely visual parallel to the hole in the ground leading to Marianne's grave. The camera moves into it, and our narrative moves into the past to witness the creation of that very hole in the ground that we've been seeing this entire time. Like I said, it leads down directly to Marianne's grave, and sometime after it appears, Emma discovers it in her childhood yard. I ate up the dirt to reach your ear, Marianne whispers, and sure, sure, whatever, but again, how exactly did you do that? 
You got your demon boyfriend to dig you a hole? You broke through your coffin and literally dug to the surface? You became as unto a black hole and just sucked the dirt down into your domain until you could reach your victims? Or did you literally eat up the dirt? This is one of those I wish this had been a book moments, I think. But the words, can you help me, are like a siren song to baby Emma. She presses her ear against the hole, and Marianne promises her that Emma will dream about her for the rest of her life, until one day their connection allows Marianne to escape her own dead, decaying body and slip inside Emma's. And in the present, we get another shot of Marianne emerging from a mirror reflection of a closet. Her hands come out and point in one direction, and Emma walks as if in a trance toward where she is pointed. Downstairs, she finds the clearest specter of Marianne that we've seen yet, and Marianne points again so Emma keeps walking. She dons her coat and she heads into the yard where she finds Marianne pointing towards a flimsy little wooden shed that Emma easily upturns to reveal the hole beneath. Emma leans down, listening as Marianne once again asks for a helping hand, and Emma reaches down into the hole, further and further, until her fingertips brush Marianne's, and she helps Marianne up to freedom. It's a lovely, artful moment, one of those times when this show proves just what it could be. So often, it does so well. But more often, it squanders the goodwill that moments like this purchase. It's a damn shame. For now, though, we linger in interesting territory. Marianne emerges bodily from the hole, and Emma, for the first time, sees her as she once was, young and perfectly human-looking. Not a stunning beauty, no, but a perfectly friendly face. And she pulls Emma into a hug while their shared consciousness flashes into some internal world beyond the physical. It's somewhere between a mindscape, I'd say, and a quasi-afterlife. And Marianne leads Emma hand-in-hand hand down the path to the city by the black water that's been so often mentioned. And again, I love this, and this should have been a book. Demons leading their victims away to a city by the black water that may or may not be some kind of an afterlife or purgatory or hell is awesome. It's very Lovecraft adjacent, especially with the implication that what we're witnessing is almost something akin to a dream world. And though it's a very lovely visual, I really don't think that the visuals make up for what is lost by telling the story in televised format rather than prose. This could have been a gorgeous prose story, not one of Emma's pulpy YA horror novels, but a truly beautiful horror story with hints of Hawthorne and Lovecraft and Machen, and I think I will forever remember this series as one of just enormous wasted potential. The writer and the witch, Marianne says. It has been written for a long time. We need to see the dark man. I wonder indeed what she actually had planned for Emma, had Emma walked by the black water with her after all. Was Emma only a tool for her to use, I wonder, or did this connection between them, this vaguely prophetic connection, did it mark Emma as someone merely intended to help Marianne, or did it mark her as someone almost kindred to Marianne? I guess what I'm asking is this. If Emma had gone to that so-called city, would it have been as simple as Emma consigning herself to some kind of a potentially eternal hell? Or might it have turned Emma into something like Marianne herself? Back to the priest for a hint of what's going on in the real world while Emma is failing to escape Marianne's will. Marianne is fully in the driver's seat at this point, and she's coming up the stairs toward the priest with a knife in hand and murder on her mind. I'm only an emissary, she says. Others bigger and more ambitious than me await in the world's shadow at the edge of the black water. Again, forever and again, this is so fucking good. This is perfect. This should have been a book. This deserved to have a better story, propping it up, than what it got. And as Marianne uses Emma's body to stab the priest nearly to death, Emma senses it on the path to the black water, but she can't break free. Cut to Aurora, who is cautiously approaching Emma's house. There is another skin and hair bag hanging on the handle of the open doors, hinting at the horrors she's about to find inside. She wanders the house, calling out for Emma. 
She finds the gun on the table, and finally Emma makes her presence known. She tells Aurora to pick up the gun and come find her, and with the anti-demon necklace in hand, Aurora does. They play hot and cold for a while, and it's nowhere near as tense as I think the show wants it to be, to the point that I thought for sure there was going to be some kind of a subversion when Aurora sees the toes of Emma's shoes peeking out from behind the curtains. But no, it's just Emma back there, and I guess the scary part is supposed to be that she's holding a knife and her hands are all bloody, but like, yeah man, she just tried to kill someone. There's blood. It's not scary, because I already knew about that. And despite the horrible things that Aurora said to and about Emma when last they saw each other, suddenly Aurora is more than willing to stand up for Emma when Marianne denigrates her. It's some rank hypocrisy that I find entirely unsympathetic. I suppose I should be some degree of moved that Aurora is here trying to help at all, but I don't know. I guess my problem is just that the show's attempts at emotional depth are incredibly shallow and melodramatic. I feel less like I'm being told an emotional story and more like I'm watching someone try and fail to manipulate my emotions. It feels a lot like one of those woe is me rants that you'll be familiar with if you've ever had to deal with a narcissistic friend, partner, or family member before. There's no subtlety or deafness at all to what this show is trying to pull off in the emotions department, and while I will infinitely sing the praises of all the shit that it does well, this facet of the story is just a mess. So, with each woman armed with her weapon of choice, Aurora with her gun, and Marianne Emma, or Emmy Ann, if you will, with her knife, they press their weapons to each other's guts. Emmy Ann tries to goad Aurora into shooting Emma lest Aurora gut her, but when Emmy Ann goes to take the gun from her, she lets it go and throws the anti-demon charm around Emma's neck. It has a definite effect, but not entirely the one that Aurora was hoping it would have. Emma does not free herself from Marianne's control, not really, but in her mind, she is finally able to let go of Marianne's hand, and in real life, she's about to tell Aurora to flee. The priest, not yet dead, takes this opportunity to crawl out of the house and toward the hole leading to Marianne's grave. Aurora, for her part, runs down the long road away from Emma's family home, while Marianne tries to persuade Emma to retake her hand. And as Aurora decides to return to the house, the priest finds a cache of gasoline that he pours into Marianne's grave. And Emma, struggling against Marianne both in her mind and out of it, she puts the gun to the underside of her jaw. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'm sure I'll say it again another million times. Don't do this. I don't mean that in a killing yourself is a sin kind of way. I mean that in a very literal, you will not die, but you will wish you had kind of way. Putting a gun beneath your jaw will not kill you. It will blow your face off, and then you will really wish you were dead. Anyway, anyway, we come to another moment that I think would have been far better in written form than in visual form. Marianne, or perhaps it's Veleth, reaches up from Marianne's grave and drags the priest down, except that the hole is suddenly a grave again, restored to the state it was in when the last religious guy tried and failed to burn this bitch, and I kind of hate the way that this whole bit is presented on screen. I don't think there's a better way to have done it, no, but that's kind of my point. I don't think any visual format is right for this scene. I might have liked this if it were written, but it's very silly when for video. Especially when that fucking Ahagao demon shows up again. And while the Marianne versus Emma battle in the center of the mind scene is funny, way better than the similar scene in that awful Order of the Phoenix adaptation, Aurora finally reaches the house. She finds Emma's predicament physicalized. Marianne hovers over her, struggling with Emma while Emma tries to position her gun. And while Emma saves herself within her mind, or tries to, Aurora saves Emma in real life. She grabs Emma right as she pulls the trigger, making the bullet go off course, and outside, the priest sets Marianne's grave alight. Marianne disappears from Emma's mind just as she swings her bat, which is the show robbing itself of a very powerful moment just so that this priest can play hero, and what in the entire fuck is that decision? And then a raven flies off from where Marianne was last seen, 
hinting at her survival after all. Now, when Aurora and Emma wake, we find that Emma is still alive, but the bullet either grazed or went through Aurora's arm. Emma is fucked too, though her precise injuries are more up in the air. When we see her next, she's in a hospital bed and Aurora's had her arm treated. They make sure that neither one of them is Marianne any longer, and Emma asks in a panic if Marianne took anything from her on the way out. But Aurora says that it's different this time. This time, Marianne did not just leave. This time, Marianne died. If there were ever going to be a season two, I would say we'll see to that, but since the show was cancelled, I suppose I should just assume that Marianne really is dead. Elsewhere in the hospital, Camille is awake and aware but not speaking to anyone. Emma waves hello to her and tries to pick up their relationship more or less where it left off, but Camille's not into it. And at home, Emma has dinner with her father. They discuss the future of her writing career and her dad's woeful attempts to cook her mother's stuffed tomato recipe. And while Emma is returning to the city, she promises to visit. Before she goes, though, she picks up Camille from the hospital. Emma plays 20 questions trying to get her to talk, and I feel it's necessary to point out here that Emma is once again back in that same outfit she spent the first, like, three or four episodes in. Anyway, she implies that Camille isn't speaking because, via Marianne, Camille got a glimpse of, quote, what waits in the afterlife, hell or purgatory or whatever else in that city by the Blackwater. It's a very lovely, melancholy moment of cosmic horror. If that city and its demonic rulers are an inevitability, that is very Catholicism meets Lovecraft. It's not mad space gods, sure, but it is a fate bigger than humanity that cannot be fought against. And that was the crux of Lovecraft's idea of horror. Before they leave town, though, Emma has a couple of things that she needs to do. She throws a white rose on the steps of the church in mourning for that asshole priest, and then she's off to Sebastian's house. Sophie is far from pleased to see her, and Emma has almost given up on Sebastian actually saying goodbye to her by the time he finally shows his face. When he does, the moment is warm, until she mentions what happened between them after the island. He, of course, has no idea what she's talking about, because that was not him. But he thinks she's just being shitty, trying to break up his relationship or something, and I honestly don't really have any sympathy for this. I said earlier that he's a really hot and cold bastard toward her, and I stand by that. He's so warm to her until the second she does something wrong, and he refuses to even consider the possibilities of the situation. He simply decides that Emma is crazy and practically evil, and somehow it never seems to enter his mind that what she's talking about could be, you know, more of the demon fuckery that almost ruined his entire life. Literally, when she asks, then who was it? He just tells her, I don't care, and demands that she leaves. Like, fuck off into the sun, dude. Your friend just told you she was raped, and she doesn't know by who, and all you've got to say is, I don't care? I'm very happy to be seeing the last of this asshole. Back in the car, Camille speaks her first words since her possession. Hell is by the ocean. It's a statement on the town, as certainly as it is a statement about the literal hell that Marianne was trying to lead Emma into. And the minute Emma hits the town limits, something else hits her morning sickness. A demon fucked her literally, quote, the day before yesterday, that is the exact timeline she gives, and yet she is having morning sickness. <sighs> I suppose I'd better explain this. Here's how it works for the uninformed. Approximately once a month, one or both ovaries release an egg. For the next 12 to 24 hours after the egg is released, it is capable of being fertilized. For the egg to be fertilized in this half-day or day-long window, the egg must come into contact with a sperm cell. Now, once a sperm cell enters a woman's body, it can survive for up to about five days. So if you have unprotected sex in the days leading up to ovulation, it's possible that a sperm cell will reach the egg during the fertilization window. 
From there, the egg hangs around on the fallopian tube for about 30 hours to begin developing, and then it moves into the uterus. Now, this bit is irrelevant to what I'm trying to explain, but it's a common misunderstanding apparently, so I will explain it too. If something goes wrong in this process and the fertilized egg never moves out of the fallopian tube, you have what's called an ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancies must, period, must be terminated. Otherwise, they will kill the mother months before the fetus has developed into anything resembling a baby. And contrary to the lies that anti-abortion activists like to spread, medically moving an ectopic pregnancy to the uterus is not something that modern science can do. We do not have that technology. We do not have that capability. If you leave an ectopic pregnancy and do not abort it, the mother and the quote-unquote baby dies. Period. Anyway, back to my point. After hanging around in the fallopian tube, the egg grows into a single-celled embryo called a zygote. The cell will divide and grow for the next seven days, at which point it will move down into the uterus and begin the process of implantation, at which point the woman will be considered pregnant. You are not pregnant until the embryo implants. That's the medical definition of pregnancy. And less than 50% of all fertilized eggs make it to the point of successful implantation. As for morning sickness, that does not happen until you have a fetus at least six weeks old. So if Emma's tryst with fake Sebastian happened, quote, the day before yesterday, as she says, that damn egg should still be in her fallopian tube, and it definitely won't have implanted yet, and Emma is months away from morning sickness. And guess what? A pregnancy test can't even detect your pregnancy until a week or two out from when the egg was fertilized, which either means that this is the latest among many cases of writers having no fucking clue how the hell pregnancy works, or Emma has got her own little renesmee in her future. And if you don't find that concept scary, go ahead and Google Twilight Demon Baby to see what the fuck I mean. Imagine giving birth to that thing. That is a fate worse than death right there. Lizzie has kept a piece of the darkness with her, the narrator reads. There's really no getting around it, and Camille is convinced right from the jump. Emma is pregnant, and the baby is fake Sebastian's. But as Emma asked of real Sebastian, who the fuck was fake Sebastian? Was it Belleth? Or was it Marianne herself? Either way, the pregnancy test is positive, and Emma looks forlornly at the night sky as she takes in the reality of the final way that Marianne quite literally fucked her over. It's a rather devastating ending, and like I said, the show has been cancelled. Marianne will not be getting a second season. Emma's story will not be receiving any continuation. She will almost certainly linger forever in this moment of horror that taints and undercuts her triumph. And I don't dislike that. I despise pregnancy horror, yes. But I really enjoy a good downer ending. This final note, though, is not the final word on the series. In an article at Bloody Disgusting, creator Samuel Bowden discussed his plans for season two of Marianne. I will link the article in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself, but I'm going to sum it up here. Bowden intended to write three seasons of the show. He had no idea what he was going to do in season three, but he had a story in mind for season two. He wanted season two to be a love story. Emma was going to fall in love with a villainous older woman under so-called strange circumstances, and it would ultimately be her romantic feelings for Camille that saved her. Furthermore, they wanted to do a lot with that city near the sea in the second season. Apparently, Emma would have had some kind of a reunion with those of her friends who were cursed or killed in the first season. And as for the pregnancy, it would have temporarily disappeared, only to suddenly reemerge after she has a one-night stand. And, unsurprisingly, Marianne would have come back to haunt Emma again, trying to make sure that Emma did not abort the fetus. Throughout all of it, Emma would have had to rediscover her writing. With Marianne gone from her, she would have lost her talent only to reinvent her writing style by the end of the season in a triumphant end to the arc. And while I don't love the idea of an evil older woman meets evil lesbian character, 
I don't hate most of that. I like the arc regarding Emma's writing, even if it is a bit cliche, and I enjoy the confirmation that Emma is a queer character, as well as the canonization of the Emma and Camille romance. I could live without Marianne coming back, though that's certainly hinted at given the appearance of the Raven in her final scene, and I would love for some exploration of what the fuck is up with that so-called city by the black water. Not to mention, if you're going to do pregnancy horror, you should sure as shit better take it as an opportunity to say something pro-choice, which it sounds like Bowden intended to do. So while I can't in good faith say that I'm disappointed Marianne isn't going to be getting a second season, it sounds like season two had a solid set of bones to it and could have been something great. But then again, that was the whole problem with season one, wasn't it? It had a solid set of bones, could have been something great, and even pulled off some pretty awesome and artistic moments. But overall, the show's crappier, cringier moments dragged the whole thing down, at least for me. But that, that really does conclude my thoughts on Marianne. I know I might be an outlier in terms of opinions on this show. I know a lot of people really enjoyed this series, and I did a bit of poking around on the Marianne subreddit after I finished watching. The verdict over there seems to be that people really liked it. Now, of course, it being the Marianne subreddit means that there's a definite bias happening in the people who are commenting, but the impression I'm left with overall is that this show is generally considered good. It was enjoyed. Which I suppose just means that your average viewer has a very different standard for a story than I do. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, of course, not in terms of my opinion or in anyone else's. It's just that I suppose there's a reason that before I started this project, I had largely fallen away from watching TV. The appeal of watching a story to me seems to be very different than the appeal it has for a lot of people. Forgive me if I'm way off base here, but it seems to me that the average viewer, not speaking to any viewers specifically, but just your general viewer, a lot of the time the average viewer specifically goes to TV to turn their brain off as a form of entertainment. Something like, oh, well, I had a tense day, I had to use my brain all day long, and now I need something to let me dissociate, something to let me turn my brain off in a positive way for like an hour or two. And I get that. There's no shame in that. But it's not remotely how I experience television storytelling, and so I keep finding that what works for a lot of people really doesn't work for me. I keep finding that really popular things just are not my jam, and that's kind of a bummer, but it is what it is, I suppose. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not trying to be a buzzkill here or anything. I really think that there was a lot that this show did very, very well. But I think it gets a bit more praise from its fans than it really deserves. The bar for TV is honestly really, really low. In any case, after Marianne, I'm going to be watching Vampire Night, which is definitely a show that I remember from my childhood. I've never seen it before, but dear God, did I hear a lot about it back in the mid-2000s, and I so look forward to getting into it. If you would like to join me, make sure to tune in next week for my first episode of coverage. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I will be watching after Vampire Night, you can head over to my Patreon, where for $1 per month, you get access to polls where you will let me know which you would be most interested in me covering. And if you are interested in watching my reaction videos to Marianne, Vampire Empire Knight, Dark, Archive 81, Squid Game, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, Umbrella Academy, and more, those are available to $5 patrons. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will join me again next week.